1: age successfully, making your second half of life even better than the first. My guest today is Louis Theodore, who may be a retired professor, but he is anything but a retiring type. After a distinguished career teaching chemical engineering at Manhattan College and serving as director of the graduate program, primarily responsible for his program achieving a number two national ranking, Louis continued to lead an extraordinarily productive second half of life as an educator, scholar, author, Basketball fan, coach, consultant, mentor, grandfather, and now an inventor. At age 87, he is hardly slowing down. In today's episode, Lou describes a life story that started out in New York City's Hell's Kitchen and took him to the top of a complex scientific field as an internationally recognized expert in environmental management. Lou has written 131 texts and reference books covering a wide range of topics, including environmental ethics, air pollution control equipment, nanotechnology and most recently, a second edition of Introduction to Environmental Management, which he co-wrote with his wife, Mary. He currently serves as a part-time consultant to Theodore Tutorials, a firm specializing in providing training needs to industry, government, and academia. Along the way, Lou has maintained his lifelong passion for basketball, supporting youth leagues and publishing a decidedly non-technical book, Basketball Coaching 101. A compendium of personal stories, a short history of the game, and a spray of tips and commentary from other coaches, players, writers, and fans. Not surprisingly, he's working on a second edition of this book, too. Lou's life highlights the importance of several key factors that contribute to a healthy longevity. A strong sense of purpose, continuing stimulation of the mind, close social connections with family and colleagues, students and basketball players, and longstanding relationships as well as new ones. And as a testament to his enduring curiosity and creativity, Lou has just been awarded two patents relating to the processes for obtaining drinking water from geothermal energy and combustion of fossil fuels. There's a growing shortage of potable water across the planet, and Lou is intent on contributing to the search for solutions. So now it's time to meet today's extraordinary professor and polymath, Louis Theodore. Lou, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, thank you. Uh, Very flattering. I thank you for that flattery introduction.
1: Well, it's uh, quite a part, right.
2: Part of which I wrote.
1: Uh. Part, <laughs> and, and all of which is true. Oh. So um, anyway, so Lou, I, I'm going to back up a little bit and just uh, talk, talk to our audience about how you and I met. So, so we met oh, se- several years ago at a, a party. I, I was actually writing a story about Lou, who, would, who was, uh, was the coach of a, an amateur basketball team at, in Queens, in the story of Queens. Um, and uh, they, this group of, of fellows had been getting together at the time uh, for the 50 50th years. Year. That was
2: the yeah. 50th year yeah. anniversary.
1: So we wrote a story about that, about uh, the friendship of this group of uh, men. Uh, and I noticed that this uh, f- rather uh, raucous meeting, which was a lot of fun, of a, a gathering of these guys, that they often uh, referred to Lewis Coach, but, but more often they referred to him as Professor, a, a real uh, especially, you know, among these friends, they'd call each other a lot of things, but professor was clearly, you know, a term of respect. So that, that, that impressed me. And, and so I wanted to talk about, you know, how it is that you got to, you know, you would grown up as I mentioned in hell's kitchen. How did you get into a career in chemical engineering?
2: Uh, I, what did you say? They call me professor. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to, I want to interject that, uh, I often go to the racetrack with these guys and uh-huh. they used to give me money, uh, <laughs> since I was supposed to be the expert, and I would be- And I also gained the nickname of chemist.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And the reason I got the nickname of the chemist, uh, chemist, was because I always turned their money into shit. <laughs> Pardon the Queen's English, but right. uh, I had to get that in. Okay, back to your question. Uh, right. How did I get that? Uh, Uh, My father had a little restaurant in Hell's Kitchen, and a gym teacher used to come down there that my father really uh, idolized. And one day, he stopped in, and he said, "Louis should become a chemical engineer. And after the guy walked out, my father turned to me and said, you're going to become a chemical engineer. (laughs) And when I got accepted into Cooper Union, I, at the Stuyvesant, I selected chemical engineering as my option, and I was off and running. Right. Right. I don't
1: know if that answers your question. Yeah, but, uh... no, it does. Yeah, sure. So, um, and you got your master's and your PhD, and then uh, you embarked on a career in Manhattan College, right? Yes. Right, yes. right. And then, you, uh, but you, so you covered a lot of territory. You taught, you know, you were a scholar. You taught, You, you as I mentioned in the intro, you did a lot of textbooks, Um uh, so you started specializing in environmental management or is that, would that, would that be right? Or are you? you
2: no, know, that would be correct. I started off, uh, strictly in chemical engineering, but, uh, the environment suddenly, remember I started in 1960 and 1970 was the, uh, the time, uh, EPA was born. Right. And there was a lot of activity in the environmental field starting around 1965 and, uh, my department had pushed me into the environmental field, so I went in and uh, uh, I think I benefited uh, significantly from my chemical engineering background. I, I think I did anyway. It, uh, uh, one thing led to another, and uh, before you knew it, I was, uh, I was rolling. I can tell you during, in terms of failure, I just mentioned failure, well, during my uh, first uh, I would say eight or nine years at Manhattan, I wrote 19 proposals. And these proposals ran about 100 pages long. And they all were turned down. And there was some vicious reviews, too. So it was 19 proposals before I got my first one in. And probably 10 or 15 years later, I wouldn't write a proposal unless I knew I was wired into to, to get it. So time kind of kills all all ailments sometimes
1: anyway okay right, right but but you know that also shows you know the importance of um of discipline and drawing yet i mean i think that you in one of our previous conversations you talked about you know your conversations with students about sort of appreciation for so-called failures which are basically just you know inevitable steps on the way to success you oh, can't boy. avoid them
2: oh isn't that the truth that was uh that was a tough time, uh, bad, tough on my ego. Uh-huh. But, uh
1: huh.
2: But and you know I have a very fragile ego. <laughs>
1: right.
2: Uh, modesty's not my middle name. Uh, <laughs> right. But anyway, so yeah, it, uh, next thing you know, I I got a, a grant and uh, and then uh, I got another three or four grants. Uh, it was things turned around for me. Right. Right. Uh, I went. Uh, I had a sabbatical with EPA in mm-hmm. 1973, and that really affected the trajectory of my life because uh, it was there, I was assigned to the training institute, which kept me uh, in providing educational tools and, and lectures to uh, regulatory people and industrial people all over the country. you got to remember, this was a brand new field, it was right. 19, early 1970s, this was right after Nixon started the uh, EPA and uh, uh, the air was dirty, uh, the water was dirty, the land was uh, contaminated, uh, and over the next uh, 30 or 40 years, uh, I've said a lot of negative things about EPA, but it was due to EPA that uh, we turned things around. And right now, uh, in my judgment, the air has never been cleaner. Same thing with water and all mm-hmm. land.
3: Yeah. Uh,
2: so. so- I was in the environmental field. Yeah. I, still kept my, I kept my hand in chemical, but...
1: Uh, right, right.
2: But well, I also, you have to remember, there were no courses then either. Mm-hmm. Was, so I got lucky there. I started developing these courses that uh, uh, I got some funding from EPA. I would write the manuals. I would write the uh, lecture notes. And naturally, in many instances, I was giving the courses myself. Which right, was, uh, right. Uh, which was, which
1: was good. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, so in many ways you were pioneering this field. I think that, um, you know, it, it was not, you know, that people could see the need for it, but I'm sure there was a lot of resistance. I mean, certainly I remember, you know, I'm a few years younger than you, but I, I do remember when i um, better looking. Okay. Well, I'll take that. But <laughs> um, you know, the, when, when Rachel Carson's, you know, Silent Spring came out, there was a lot of pushback, like, well, this can't be true. This, you know, that, you know, how, how could pollution affect, um, you know, uh, nature in this way? Um, so I think that, you know, there's been a lot of progress. I think there are lots of questions about how do we do it and how fast we do things. Um, certainly, um, you know, there are lots of jobs at stake. But I think that, um, you know, where, where do you think we are today, Lou, in terms of said, I mean, I think we, things, you know, in spite of you know, a lot of questions about things. I think you're right. Things are a lot better. They're a lot cleaner. They're Very lot...
2: definitely. Uh, I'm not satisfied. I, I'm disappointed with EPA. Uh, when I came aboard, when EPA was founded in 1970, it was uh, it was truly a technical organization. Mm-hmm. It was run by uh, Ruckelshaus, uh, who, was, mm-hmm. a, who was a lawyer. But it was a. It really was a tech. We, te- we had technical problems that we were tackling. And the problem is today, it's run by lawyers. And it's an organization run by lawyers, for lawyers. And uh, things have kind of turned around. But uh, we need that type of organization. If I had my way, I'd dissolve EPA and start anew. But EPA has uh, really, uh, early on, really did the job. Mm -hmm. I had a number of my colleagues uh, who went out and solved problems uh, That needed
1: solving and they did it. Right. Right.
2: They did
1: it. Yeah. Well, I think that is your engineering mentality. I think, uh, you know, that I I think that, you know, when I think back to my father, who was, he was not a uh, chemical engineer, but he was an electronic engineer. Okay. But, but I think that, uh, you know, the engineering mentality, I think uh, really pulled this country out of World War II and set us on a, a course of, of problem solving. You know, I think that's what engineers do. I remember my, my father, you know, he, you know, he would tackle almost any problem and he would break it down. And he, sometimes he would often he'd try to quantify it and create categories of analysis. But I think that's the issue is like, OK, let's get beyond, you know, philosophy and get let's solve the problem, solve the problem. So I think that that's, uh, you know, and, and, you know, your focus on teaching people how to solve problems, I think, has been, you know, uh, something.
2: Well, to, I'm often asked, uh, what does an engineer do? And my answer is very simply, they solve problems. Right. Unlike lawyers <laughs> who create problems. Uh I've okay. got it out for lawyers, Ronnie, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, that's okay. Well I no, there are lots of lawyers who solve problems too. But I mean yes. I, I know that, yes, so um anyway, Listen, uh, I, I did yeah. a
2: lot I did work for DOJ, Department of Justice. Right. And I came across a couple of lawyers that were out of this world. I mean right. and straight straight as an arrow.
1: Right, right. Yeah, well, I think that uh, if no matter what a profession, if we focus on solving problems, I think that's the way to move forward. So I applaud you for that, and I applaud you for for teaching your students. I mean, I I know you've had a long, interesting um, uh, career with you know continued relationships with students that you oh, know on a, on, a, on a you know on a scholarly level, on a, on a so tell us yeah social level. Well, tell us about you know. I mean, you've got you've worked on a number of books with your students, right, or former students who became. Oh professors and scholars. and academic, yeah, you, know.
2: you should have told me you were going to ask me that question. I would have some books to show you, but uh, I would say probably three-quarters of the books that I've written. Mm-hmm. How many did you mention? 131. I think Correct. that's a, a plus or minus one, maybe, or two. Mm-hmm. But uh, almost all were co-authored or I had students contribute to what I was, uh, what I was uh, writing, uh, uh, very very gratifying, and keeping in touch with these kids socially, has been such a uh, enjoyable part of my life, and it's been great for these kids because uh, you look like you got ants in your pants. Are you had something wrong? No, no, no. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, it, uh, writing a chapter in a book, or co-authoring a book really help these kids get their first job right uh, because when they go to apply for a job and there's six or seven kids that are up for a job uh, and this kid has written a chapter in a in a in a book with a reputable publisher the odds are on that this kid's going to get the job i often tell a story i don't know if we have time
1: we do we have, we're going to come up with the break shortly but we have a minute or so go ahead
2: yeah i i have a kid who's uh, I love this kid. You probably met him at one of my parties. Um, he had applied to, and I, I got to be careful to cover this, with an Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. He applied, and uh, they turned him down. It was his dream. He was probably the best kid I ever had. And, uh, so I, went, and I said, Frankie, I said, well, why? Why did, he, he had co-authored two books with me, with John Wiley and Sons. Mm-hmm. I mean, a premier publisher. Right. Said, why the hell didn't you bring the two books with you? Oh, uh, anyway, sure enough, they called him. They called back and said they put him on a waiting list. Anyway, they called him back and uh, they brought him down. This time he brought the two books in and he got admitted into the school. Right. And in the meantime, he meets the love of his life there, a freshman from another Ivy school. Mm -hmm. They're now married. They're both working for drug companies and eminently successful. So uh, this is the type of thing.
1: Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, I think that that's, and of course, in in this world, you know, publishing is really critical. So you really, these are really credentials that you need. So, um, so we're going to, we're going to take a short break now, Lou. Uh, So, and so uh, those of you listening, uh, we'll, we're going to, there's much more to come with Professor Lou Theodore. So don't go anywhere.
2: We'll be right back. We will.
0: A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reingold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere. Does good everywhere.
4: Want to play the ponies and win?
0: you're listening to 45 forward to reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 forward.
1: Welcome back folks. We're talking today with Lou Theodore, the multi-talented chemical engineer, educator, author, and coach. Now, before I continue my conversation with Lou, I wanted to mention that you can find out more about him by going to my website, roelresources.com. That's R-O-E-L, resources.com. Clicking on the 45 Forward tab, and find out more about Lou's work on his website, uh, when, where he has his newsletter. So that's uh, Newsletter.com. And you can w- see- w- Right, www. dot,
2: dot com
1: Right. W- w- Lou Theodore Newsletter.
2: Theodore.
1: right, Right, W. Okay, got it.
2: I've had about 15,000 hits, so some people think I know what I'm talking about. That's
1: right, that's right.
2: Fool. I fooled you, I can fool <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: you. Yeah, and you can, see, you can see many of Lou's books, too. They're also listed on Amazon.com, if you like. So so before the break, we were talking about um, Lou's teaching, and I wanted to continue with that, because that's you know uh, an important part of his career uh, he's won a, a couple of uh, major awards as an outstanding teacher, uh, one called the Ripperton Award. Uh, there's the ATT Foundation Award. So I, I want to talk a little bit more with you, Lou, about your teaching. And you were t- mentioning to me during the break about some of your students and just some of your other interactions with them in, in, over the years.
2: Yeah, well, uh, this, this, the most important thing, uh, more than anything else, in addition to technical involvement with these kids, has been the social involvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one story. Uh, I had a student back in uh, the early nineteen seventies. His name was Tony Unicori, mm-hmm. and he was a uh, an average student. But God, this kid was—he uh, was hungry. He was uh, one time I, I remember he was a a junior, and I said, "Listen, I've got I've got to be in two places at the same time. Uh, can you pick up one of my presentations?" in Louisville, I had to go to Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And much to my surprise, the kid said yes. Okay, fast forward, turns out he wound up my co-lecturer when I was touring the country. And this kid was just uh, just a great, great lecturer. Make a long story short, he's got more money than probably everybody in this audience uh, combined. So he's wow. been emin- eminently successful. Uh get invited up to his lake house up in uh, New Hampshire, it's right. a, but this is the type of thing I've had. It's, it's just wonderful in, yeah. in a lot of respects. Anyway, let's, uh, let's yeah. go
1: on. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I mean, I think that that's, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, as you go on in life, you realize that, um, you know, in addition to your family, you know, you developed, um, you know, mentor relationships.
2: You never mentioned the love of my life. I got, uh, I got, I, I married the, the girl of my dreams.
1: Okay. Okay. Mary. got
2: to mention Mary. Yeah. You yes, know, Mary. Yeah. Many times. Yes. Three kids, I three grandkids. She yes, Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> three kids, three grandkids. Uh,
1: well, I think it's also just a you know credit on many levels. You know, she's got her own career. She's had her own career, but now. Yeah. So your latest book is with her. Well, you 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 always have books in development. I know you have two books that you're working on, even as we speak. But the last published book that you showed me was with Mary, um, yeah. and uh, you know. A sec-
2: Actually, it's listed as a, third, a second edition, but it's actually the third edition, and the book has done uh, done very well, because one of the things my books have in common is that they don't sell, but um, between the <laughs> two of us. But this one has really done well. It's called uh, Introduction to Environmental Management, right. and a number of schools have used it for uh, uh, academic purposes. Yeah, yeah. introduction. And in it, uh, we, we addressed, uh, addressed virtually every environmental topic that you can imagine from a non-technical perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Mary's not a technical uh, person. Uh, so this was really uh, I made a commitment, no equations. But in it, we get into electromagnetic waves, uh, noise pollution, air pollution control, uh, Nano, you name a topic, and uh, and it's in, I've got the, even a new one. I've got Desail the Nation, which is one of the books that work now. And right. Hot topic I'm interested in.
1: Well, I think that's important that you've you know, taken that approach, because I think that one of the issues we're facing, you know, as a nation and as a nation of, of educators is how do we bridge the divide and get, you know, uh, enough knowledge um, among a non-technical audience and a non-technical population of scientific issues that they need to be aware of. And I think that, you know, you, you know, that you book has done it. Right. Right. I think I that, think yeah, no, I think that's, you know, and that commitment to do that, I think is important because it's easy to write, you know, these are right above people's heads, but when you have to really think about how do you get information to them, um, to a non-technical audience. And this has been an issue. I think that, um, You know, I'm I'm aware that uh, there there are a number of um, programs in journalism schools now about how to to communicate, uh, that actually train, have courses for scientists about how to communicate with the public because, you know, they're brilliant men and women, but, you know, you've got to communicate with an audience that's got to understand complex issues and have enough knowledge to be able to interact with it and make, you know. You know, join the scientific community on looking at 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 our favorite word, solutions. How do we know what what are viable solutions if we don't understand what what scientists and engineers and researchers are talking about? So, I commend you for that. That's a
2: thank you for the kind words.
1: That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah it's, uh Yeah. Uh, we just we just gave a paper talking about that. Uh, what about delivery systems? COVID nineteen has. Uh, Turned everything upside down. Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, when you say I delivery said, systems, what do you, delivery of vaccines or just delivery? No, no,
2: no, delivery of educational material. Oh, okay, how yeah. Do we, how do we teach the kids?
1: Okay. I mean, okay. I
2: grew up uh, as a student and early on as an educator with uh, it was all chalk and, chalk and blackboard. And right. That's a thing of the past. And uh, this paper, I, I think it was uh, this past June which I, I brought in three other of my colleagues. Uh, I actually wrote the paper, but at the tail end, I had each of us put a uh, half page write up on where we envision academic education to be five years from now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I don't think too many people, uh, uh, I believe, it should all be distance learning. I. Oh, you do! Uh, okay. Oh, I have, I have. Uh, I, have uh, I, I mean, I love being tenured, mm-hmm. but uh, I can also tell you about when I, I had people on my staff that uh, milked the system for what it was worth. It was a mm-hmm. disgrace. I had, a, I had one person on there who couldn't speak English. It was uh, mm-hmm. not fair. Right. And it's good to have. Uh, you want to have great lecturers, but it doesn't happen. I mean, as a matter of fact, I remember had to be 25, 30 years ago, I I don't know where I was. I got up, uh, it was an environmental course. Uh, uh, I was teaching some regulatory people. I got up and I gave a lecture. I came and I sat down and said, my God, was I great. Well, you know, I'm modest in my life. God, I don't think I ever gave a better lecture. And I sat down and then this kid, Tony Boonecourt, I just talked about, he got Mm -hmm. up and he gave a lecture. And it's hard for me to say this, but his lecture was better than mine.
3: Mm-hmm,
2: and mm-hmm. and here I am. I'm thinking this thing is now gone. Only these twenty or twenty five people have gotten the benefit of what what, what just transpired. Right. And wouldn't it be great if we had had put this down on a canvas, put it in a vault or something, and come right. back? Wouldn't that be better than having a live guy there who doesn't want to be there and can't lecture? Ideally, you'd like to have a great lecturer, lecture live, but usually that doesn't happen.
1: Right, right. Well, I think that the thing that's interesting in our time now is that I think, like it or not, we've been thrown into this Zoom, you know, culture and uh, because of COVID. But I think that we now have an opportunity to really use, you know, these uh, this technology to to expand, you know, uh, education and really be much more inclusive. Right. I mean, so now you could have a great lecture and he, and you could be, you could have, you could have people listening to him live and then, but you could also be broadcasting this thing or, or streaming this thing as we say, okay. you know, That's a good way to put it. Um, you know, and so, so you can include lots of people who couldn't possibly be there in person, you know? So, you know, it, it basically See, creates economics a potential. Too. E- absolutely.
2: E- economics come into play here where, um, uh, You've got these uh, professors like myself coming in and spending roughly 25 percent of their time getting 150, 125, 150 grand a year, and I don't think I don't think we're worth that kind of money. I, I just don't. And uh, having a, a competent graduate student to assist uh, might be helpful, but uh, anyway, I I don't know if that's a topic we want to get into, but I well, think. Uh, I think the mode of delivery is going to change.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it's going to be drastic. And those schools that don't grab the bull by the horns are going to be left behind. And that includes some of the major schools.
3: Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm.
2: we got some small schools that are doing this now. And they're getting to be reasonably successful.
1: Right, right. Uh, I think you're right. I think we're going to have to adapt to a different environment, different economic models. Um, you know, I think that certainly, um, you know, we, we have to deal with, you know, issues of cost for students and cost effectiveness. You know, it's another it's another problem that we have to come up with solutions to. It. But I, I think that by, you know, you're working on delivery systems of information. I think that's a critical thing that uh, that needs to be done.
2: Um I don't and know it, if I, I'm not doing it, but I'm saying that I believe this is the way to go. And incidentally, Mary just asked me, should I respond to the chat room?
1: No, 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 that's okay. We're, we're, that's okay. We're, that's okay. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm taking care of the chat room with our okay, engineer. Yeah, we're good. No, we're good. Yeah. So, um, so I think, uh, you know, yeah, but, but you, you, you know, you may not be working on all these new delivery systems, but you have spread out. so you have, you know, you, you've been working with training, you've been working with, you know, you've got your Theodore tutorials. So you recognize that this is the kind of stuff that that needs to spread across different sectors. So you write, you do for government, you know, audiences, business, academic audiences. Again, you need to kind of spread this information around um, yeah. to, um, to, to lots of different audiences. Um, so, but right now, though, so uh, because of COVID, you're not doing traveling much now, right?
2: Well, it's part of it's an age factor, too. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. But I can tell you, uh, uh, with that experience, I think I was, when I just talked about with Tony and I, after that, I started uh, these programmed instructional manuals where Uh I put something together where somebody could teach themselves on their own. So I was trying to move away from the, like I said, the classical approach, you know, blackboard and chalk. uh, Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: uh, I was... Well, anyway, okay. I'm trying to move away from that, right? Right. And we have, right. But the extent to which, uh, I think, the other four individuals that I had uh, uh, who contributed to the paper um, had their own thoughts, right? Uh, in fact, I had one that felt should remain as is, but mm-hmm.
1: that's
2: the way it goes. everybody has yeah, got a different, yeah. a
1: different opinion, right? Right. So let's shift a little bit, Lou, to your uh, your other passion and another passion, which is uh, your lifelong love of basketball. So it started with uh, your group of guys, at, well, probably before that, but uh, yes. uh, when you were a young man, uh, and thats it seemed like you guys really had a lot of fun. I think basketball was in a different place in New York at that time. I mean, still a you know, hub of basketball, college basketball. But you, but
2: you couldn't put it better at that time. Rockaway uh, yeah. Beach during the summer, uh, there the McGuire brothers were down there. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, Will Chamberlain stopped in once. Uh, there was really, uh, and I was coaching a board team and people normally say, well, a board team. Oh my God. But it was a different era. And several of my ball players uh, went on to not only play college ball, but they, they played the pros, uh, went on to coaching. One became a uh, an NBA coach, uh, I was very fortunate. I had some uh, uh, really good ball players, mm-hmm. uh, and they primarily came out of Astoria. And as you said, uh, we've had a lifelong friendship. But there's only one thing, Ron. Uh, there's only a couple of us left, as mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I think you came. I uh, have this party annually with all the ball players. And probably the first one you came to, there might have been uh, maybe 25 or 30 people there. Right. But now we're down to under 10. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Right. Right. Uh, it just, uh, well, time has taken its toll.
1: Right. But it, it but
2: it was, it, it's been my love. Uh, uh, I continue this with, uh, I finally decided I was going to write a book. Uh, I hit a host of topics, which, uh, maybe I shouldn't have done, but the second edition is going to be strictly on coaching basketball. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, during this period, I've attended Hofstra games. Hofstra basketball, right? And uh, I, I always say I cover the Hofstra games, but I don't. I cover the Hofstra team. I, I may do one or two or three articles a mm-hmm. year about uh, where they're headed and what they're doing. But uh, so it's uh, basketball is still a very very big part of my life uh, at night. Uh, I'm home uh, during the season. Uh, going from one
1: game to the other. Right. Did you watch the Olympics or?
2: I did not. I it, rarely watch the pros also. Oh, okay. I okay. rarely watch the pros. It's strictly okay. college.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think I could see a, a, you sort of connect with uh, your students. It's a, a college age. It's, a, you know, it's that kind of, um, you know, intense youth. I think it's but it's it's you know I, I do follow some of the pros i like watching the the college games too you know there's a, there's a certain enthusiasm and certainly um you know watching the tournaments are kind of a quite an experience right because every game is sort of like well could be the last game so there's a certain urgency about it but it's uh you know there are lots of lessons from sports that i think uh i think i remember reading i believe Lou, it was in your first edition of uh uh, the basketball book, where you talked about sort of the relationships between closing out games and your theory of optimization of results, <laughs> of, right? Of uh, of uh, of outcomes, right?
2: Yeah, well, uh, uh, that was one of the reasons that got me to write the book on coaching because I'd seen so many mistakes being made at the end of a game, and uh, a coach and a team being unprepared for. What do we call it? The unknown. As right. Things come up, and uh, they call time out, and they huddle and they start discussing what are we going to do, when actually all of this should be put place beforehand. You should know when there's thirty seconds to go, and you're up five, you're up five points, and they have the ball. You should know what you you should do beforehand. So when you get into the huddle, you don't spend your time with your assistant coaches discussing. Should I do this or that? Now, there's some really great coaches out there, but uh, most of the coaches, I think, uh, uh, leave something to be desired. And the other very disappointing thing is that uh, when I meet people involved with basketball, one of the things I always stress, as you know, we've discussed this many times, is that defense is as important as offense. Right, Right. And no matter who I say this to, the response is the same. Of course, I know that. But you tell that to a coach and every time he goes out recruiting, he looks for one thing. He looks for an offensive player. Right. He doesn't look for a defensive player. Right, right. Yeah. And if you think the first time you got introduced to basketball, Somebody, who showed you how to dribble. They showed you how to pass. They showed you how to shoot, how to take foul shots. They never told you how to play defense.
1: Right. Yeah. Lou, that's a, yeah. Hold on to that thought. We're gonna get right back it? to that after a break. Oh. Okay. So, so we're gonna just gonna take another short break. But folks, don't go anywhere. There's much more to come in our last segment with Lou Theodore. So come right back. That- <laughs>
4: Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mack. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. on Voice America Variety.
0: You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward.
1: Welcome back, folks, to 45 Forward, where we're talking today with uh, retired Professor Lou Theodore, who continues to lead a decidedly unretiring life. So before the break, we were talking with Lou about uh, other than his uh, scholarly um, and intellectual passions, um, his basketball interests. Uh, and we talked about coaching and about um,
2: defense.
1: Defense, Right. So, um, yeah, I think this is an issue that, you know, is, you know, as as in basketball, life as well but i think that this is uh you know one thing that uh, you know in observing my own games my own my son's games as well as other games you notice that um, uh if people can shoot that's great but if you have a terrific defense the other team can't score and that's equally important they can't score and you score you're gonna win so i think that that's uh something that that um you should continue to lecture people, Lou, as as they're <laughs> willing to to listen. But even if they're not, just keep saying that. So. Yeah.
2: Anyway, the uh, I wanted to mention the uh, NCAA. I I'm very definitely not a fan of the NCAA. Uh, okay. I think it's an organization that's uh, pull them ball over the eyes of uh, the general public, but. Uh, uh, I love the the NCAA uh, basketball tournament, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I you, you know, I make a wager every now and then. Uh, anyway, I I saw this club avail a play, and I fell in love with a player. His name was Mitchell, mm-hmm. and he was a decent offensive player, but he had a reputation for being a great defensive player. And if you have a great defensive player and the other team has a great offensive player, that other team is in trouble. Right. And so I wound up putting some money on Baylor with a couple of my buddies. We wound up winning a few bucks. But uh, uh, And uh, they, I was told that he was going to be drafted uh, in the first round, maybe fifth or sixth. I think he went later. I don't know what team picked him up, but that's a team I'd like to bet next year in the NBA because, like I said, you have a great defensive player. I had – God, I had a great defensive player. He went away to school. He couldn't start. Mm. And this guy, in many respects, was a star on my team. I mean, he would – you know, we had less of the pick and rolls. Like, you know, uh, the picks now, everything is uh, – pick. this guy, if I put him on a guy, the guy was sandwiched. He was gone. Right. right. So defense uh, – I'm sorry. But anyway.
1: Yeah. No, I think – but I think it's true. I think it's also – if you do watch some of these high level games you know i know you you'd rather watch college but you see it both in college and the pros as you sure. get to these um playoffs the teams that have a strong defense you know you think that they're um you know the for example when the you know the warriors were you know in their heyday people would talk about the mother's scores but the fact of the matter was if you watch their defense that was what really, you know, made the difference in the games because uh, everybody Will, can shoot these days. You know, Will
2: Russell is an example.
1: Right. Right. And himself. and you can see it in other sports. They talk about football, too. Right. I mean, you see that, you know, strong football,
2: defense. Yeah, it's more obvious in football. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Strong. But defense. not in
2: basketball.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You
2: know, you've got you've got an offensive team and a defensive team in football. So it's 50 50. But in, ba- in basketball, you don't have that. You have one team. And a key on offense, and right. I think uh, I think that's a mistake. You know, yeah, but that's me.
1: Yeah. Well, I think too, though, that these are these are lessons that do apply to life. You know, and in, in terms, of, and I mean, you say, well, how so? I mean, my I would say, well, when you play defense in life, you know, you, you think about preparing yourself, you know, for the future. Yeah. You know, um, I,
2: I've labeled it emergency planning and response. Right. And right. And that's one of the things. Uh, we didn't have with COVID-19. Right. I I point the finger at the CDC and the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they were, of course, I know you don't agree with it, but I believe that uh, they were responsible more than anything else. We were totally, totally unprepared for what happened. Right. I mean, here, both these organizations getting billions of dollars, and uh, it's unfortunate what happened Mm -hmm.
1: to us. Well, okay. I, th- yeah, no, I, I, you know, we, we, we have, you know, we have lots of, you and I share lots of opinions. I That's what I they're enjoy. Different. They're different, but that's what I enjoy about our relationship. You know, we can, again, we can maintain long friendships with different uh, opinions on stuff and that's, but that's, you know, you have to believe in the integrity of your friendship and I do. So, um, so we can continue to have vigorous arguments. I would have these many arguments with my father, you know, and we would always end up and we would, uh, you know, we would talk and talk and argue and argue. And then at the end of the night, generally, we'd look at each other and go like, hmm, you know, we're not that far apart on things. You know, uh-huh. we, we we do see, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, um, uh, shared agreement on things. Um, but I, but I going back hey, to what our about pre- us,
2: are we wouldn't you say we're very, very far apart?
1: No, n- no, very, no, very I wouldn't. no, 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 I'd say we're we're. We're closer to the, both of us are closer to the middle on many issues. I
2: always felt that I was, uh, I always felt that I was a moderate, but. Uh, yeah, no. not I, anymore. But, well,
1: um, I, well, we'll keep, we'll keep pushing on that agenda. But I, but I just wanted to get back for a minute, Lou, too, because I, I think that the issue of, um, uh, of preparedness, you know, you know, is important. And I think that, you know, whether you look at specific agencies, um, I think in general uh, and this is part of what I you know what what my message is for 45 forward is that I think that people don't prepare there you know th- there's that uh, uh, that old saying about you know uh, don't predict but plan you know A- and also you know um, you know uh, plan for the best uh, plan for the worst hope for the best but I don't think I think unfortunately we do have, you know, um, you know, uh, a society that 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 often responds to crisis.
2: Well, that's true of our country, certainly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. a
2: history of that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Unfortunately.
1: Yeah, but I think that that you know leads to expensive solutions. You know, oh, does it ever? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: and so, uh, things that adversely affect you societal lives too.
1: Right. Right. So I think that to the extent that you're you're doing a lot of this, you know, good work in terms of you know for the, whether it's chemical engineering, or environmental management, or all these things, I think these are, you know, education. That's what it you know it should be for is to help us prepare you know our next generation.
2: I know we're running out of time. Can I put a plug in for my uh, portable water stuff?
1: Uh, well, absolutely. That's that's my next topic. Well, I just wanted because because that's what I wanted to talk about, which is the fact yeah, that because I. You, I, I
2: I think one of the things that, uh, I mean, if we don't blow ourselves off the surface of the Earth, I think the uh, uh, the major problem facing planet Earth is potable water. Uh huh. And the problem is, people don't realize it. I tell, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, potable water is such a major problem. Oh, I know, I know it's a, but then again, look at us. We've gone through life. I've never had a potable water problem, I'm sure you haven't either. But if you're to believe the World Health Organization, uh, one out of every seven people don't have sufficient potable water, right. and it's gonna get worse. Right. And so anyway, I, I came up with these two patents, and uh, uh, it's just recently that I've shown it to other, because I got very frustrated. I sent it out to various utilities, uh, never went anywhere. Uh, just briefly, just briefly, Ron?
1: Sure. No, we got, we got a few minutes. Absolutely. I want to okay. describe them, please. please.
2: I have one that's a uh, based on fossil fuels. I mean, where do you get water? I mean, automatically you say, well, there's an infinite amount of water in the ocean, seawater. It's the only problem, the only problem, there's an infinite amount, but it's got three and a half percent salt, three and a half percent salt. We have the technology, but the technology is not that good. And it's mm-hmm. very expensive. Right. So if you take an area and they don't have access to seawater, it's going to be expensive. And right. when, I, when I did this, I said, you know, it's got to be better ways. And one way I came up with is with fossil fuels. If you burn natural gas, for example, with air, which right. many homes have, you get a flue gas. You have a gas that comes out. That white plume, that's water vapor. If you take that plume, you condense and you've got water. Right. You've got water. So if you're in an area you have no water, there is a source of water. Right. That ordinarily we don't have. Right. That was the first patent. The second patent, I said, listen, dig a hole in the ground. I'm a a, I'm big into geothermal energy. Mm-hmm. Dig mm-hmm. a hole, go down a mile or two. The temperature's above boiling temperature water. You bring the seawater down, blah, 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 it hits the hot temperature. Up comes the vapor, you condense it, you got water. Right. And everybody said to me, you got to be crazy. It's expensive drilling holes in the ground. So I had my colleague then who told me I didn't know what I was talking about, send me a, a, an article. It was in New York, uh, the Wall Street Journal, where uh, BP and uh, Chevron had a joint venture up in Canada. For geothermal purposes, they went down there. They went down six and a half miles, so it's doable. Mm-hmm. And so these are so. Anyway, I'm looking for not financial support, but I I, I need somebody with some sort of business knowledge. Right. Uh, technical knowledge helps too. Right. But, uh, right. I'm am a, a one man shop. I've never been good with business, with money.
1: Right. Uh, but but i mean you're good with ideas this is important and important to start
2: <laughs> okay <laughs> you
1: know, yeah no no i think it's important to get those ideas out there I, I appreciate the fact that you have what i call you know uh lifelong learning instincts you keep you know you've got an enduring sense of curiosity and creativity and, and look you know a sense of purpose though i know you're 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 a modest guy but i think that's what you know keeps us going
2: you, i think you, that's you haven't talked to mary recently have you <laughs>
1: Yeah. I talked to her just a few minutes ago. I, she and I, she and I understand each other, Lou.
2: Um,
1: So anyway, so I, no, I think it's, it's a valuable, um, you know, a a valuable quality that you have that you keep looking, you know, again, like I I, I admire, I admire the engineering mentality of our country that keeps looking for solutions. You know, we may go through failures, but every, every success is just the
2: end end point
1: of, yeah. Which are basically just steps. You know, the, the classical one is, you know, is Thomas Edison, right, who basically, you know, took, a you know, a thousand filaments before he found one that worked. Imagine if he had stopped at 50, we wouldn't have, <laughs> we wouldn't be talking to each other today. It's
2: called the Edisonian approach.
1: Uh-huh. The
2: mathematicians refer to it. As the Edisonian
1: Edisonian approach. approach. Okay, well, I'm a big fan of the Edisonian approach.
2: You're so, yeah, uh, yeah. Ultimately, get somewhere.
1: Right, right. So, okay, Lou. Well, listen, uh, we could we could talk for much longer, but um, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Um, oh. I want to just uh, thank that you again not. for a very uh, interesting formative
2: show. One more plug. One more plug, quick. One more plug. www. Yeah. W- right. Got it. And I've got. Last one was on horse racing. You want to make money at the horses? (laughs) Go there. The one before that is on technical jargon. You might find it entertaining.
1: I would find that. I'm sure I would. I'm sure I would. So, okay, good. So, folks, again, if you missed today's uh, show with Ruth Theodore, uh, you can still listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Just search for my show, 45 Forward. Uh, you could also find it on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, among other places. Or go to my website, rowellresources.com, and just click on the 45 Forward tab. Um, and if uh, Lou, if, have, if people have questions for you, the best way to reach you, uh, Lou Theodore, one by,
2: no, by phone.
1: By phone, OK. 516
2: 742 8939.
1: OK. And
2: ask for a good looking guy.
1: OK. Very good. OK. Very good. So, folks, uh, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern, when I'll be talking with Bruce Frankel, the president of the Mindful Traveler, professional consulting service that helps people find meaningful vacations as part of enhancing their life experience. So, until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thanks. Thank you.